Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. Donna Murch will talk about black radical politics of the past and present. And Kyle Shabunka will look at the phenomenon of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian strongman who's become a hero to the American right. Donna Murch, making her third appearance in Behind the News, is just out with a collection of nine essays, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, published by Haymarket Books. It looks at black radical politics over the last six decades, from the origin of the Black Panther Party in the 1960s through the movement for black lives today. Donna Murch is an associate professor of history at Rutgers and is president of the New Brunswick chapter of the faculty union, the AAUP-AFT. Donna Murch. Let's start with the title. Uh, what does that mean? So the title, Asada Taught Me, comes from, it has a double meaning. So its most immediate reference was a phrase that I saw being used in convenings for the Movement for Black Lives. It was a reference to Asada Shakur, who was a member of the New York Black Panther Party and then part of the splinter faction, the Black Liberation Army. And it was a real source of surprise and kind of delight to see that a younger generation of people born, many of them in the 1980s, were looking back to the Panther Party but not to the founders of the party, to Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, or to the place where the party was founded, but that they were tracing their lineage back to Asada Shakur, who was a rank and file member of the New York party, which was expelled in 1971. What's striking about this is that Asada published an autobiography in the 1980s, and she's someone who went through multiple trials and was accused of having killed a New Jersey law enforcement officer, but she was convicted on multiple counts, but was actually broken out of prison and became a fugitive to Cuba and currently lives in Cuba today. It's also about not only a connection to these radical politics and radical organizations of the past, but it's also Asada as symbol of fugitivity and hope. The second meaning of the title is something very personal that my introduction to the Panther Party and to Black radicalism was largely through her autobiography published in 1987. So it's both a movement reference and a personal reference of how I end up being set on the path of writing a book, starting it as a dissertation as a young person on the Black Panther Party. Okay, so this uh, book is a collection of several essays on different topics, so let's uh, just cover a few of them in turn. Um, now, we talked about this a few years ago. I think you were on in July 2020, talking um, about um, what, Living for the City. That's the title of it, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. We were talking some about uh, the importance of Merritt College in the, uh, the founding of the Black Panther Party and the genesis of uh, Black Power Movement, Black Radicalism of the 60s. I think that's a good story and worth telling again. So, yeah, what is it about Merritt College? What is Mer- was Merritt College and uh, what, was, uh, what was its role in fostering this, uh, this political movement? So the essay that's in the book was actually written before Living for the City was ever published. So it's sort of like the little acorn that produced the tree. And it's about the origins of the party. 
So for an older generation of scholars, but also honestly in the public imagination, the Panthers were always seen as the foil for the Southern Civil Rights Movement, that the Panthers represented the violence as the contrast to a movement of nonviolent civil disobedience in the South. What I found living in Oakland while I was doing the research is that many of the Panthers were born in the South and migrated as part of the Second Great Migration. Which was an important part of the Oakland story, right? That they, uh, there was a great settlement of, with the Great Migration of Oakland, which had been previously quite white and then became quite black. Exactly. And it's the rapidity with which that takes place. So Oakland has a black population of 2% in 1940. And then by 1950, it's 10%. And by 1980, it's a majority. So the party is coming out of this massive demographic transformation of Oakland. And many of these migrants are coming from the rural South. So how does that connect with Merritt College? And again, this is a story that countered a lot of the ideologies and the way that new migrants were thought of. This is the first generation uh, to gain access of poor and working class people to higher education in large numbers. And so Merritt College was this originally called Oakland City College, was on the edge of West Oakland, which was the core Black population concentration in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. Many of these young people, as they come of age, at this time under the California Master Plan, every Californian had a right to attend a higher education with a high school equivalency or a high school diploma. Many of these working class kids, not only were they, they were often the first in their families to attend high school, but also to gain access to Oakland City College, later Merritt College. And it turns out that Merritt is this amazing engine of organizing, that you had a cultural nationalist organization, Black nationalist organization called the Afro-American Association that was formed at UC Berkeley in the early 60s in response to the killing of Patrice Lumumba and to the celebrity of Malcolm X. And they were looking for a new type of Black politics. They start using the word Black instead of the word Negro. But they reach out to Merritt College because they knew that that was the center. That was a way to tap into the larger Black population in the East Bay. So it's Merritt College becomes this amazing incubator of radical politics. And often when we talk about Black studies, especially at this time when I was researching in the 90s and early 2000s, We always focused on the elite private institutions, which is often the default, unfortunately, in the American imagination of higher education. But of course, the majority of people are attending community college or four-year state schools and living at home, as were the young people at Merritt. So Merritt becomes this cauldron. And you have, with the Afro-American Association, it was a study group. And it's in this study group that Huey Newton and Bobby Steele participate in, that it helps to incubate the ideas that later become the basis of the party. So three or four years after joining the study group, they leave the campus, go into the streets and form the Black Panther Party. Okay, jumping around a bit, as was said, um, you've got an essay, uh, and you spent a lot of time studying this uh, issue, um, of crack in L.A. And what it brought forth, among many other things, are the contradictory attitudes within the Black population uh, who are distressed both by the social damage from the drugs and the economy and the violence around them, and then the vicious cop crackdown led by Daryl Gates. Uh, So could you lay out the fault lines here? The better known part of the story, of course, is the growth of the militarized police. Then, of course, there's the reaction of the black community, which is often quite divided. So yeah, could you just, the militarized police is the more familiar story, but, you know, remind us of what Daryl Gates did. 
just to give a background even to how I wrote this essay. So from 2013 to 2015, I was living in Los Angeles during this period when the movement for Black Lives took off. And I was researching this book on the war on drugs in Los Angeles and crack. And the way I arrived at that came largely from my relationship with the Black Panthers that I had interviewed. So when I was researching the Panther book in the late 90s and early 2000s, and many of the people that I interviewed talked about how devastating crack was. So when they talked about the end of the movement, they often talked about it in terms of the takeoff of the crack crisis. That time period really matters. Like I'm living in the East Bay in the 90s when Gary Webb publishes his first article in the later book, Dark Alliance. And Huey Newton died in a drug transaction in 1989. And so that kind of specter of crack was so strong in California and over the history of the party in particular. So that's really how I came to this topic. And I came to it in many ways with a sensibility like I had when I wrote my first book, I was thinking about it as part two. So my book ends in 1977. And I was thinking about writing about the crack crisis as a way to talk about the 80s and 90s and the trajectories of different people that have been involved in the movement. One of the really painful things I found is that in contrast to the 1960s with the Rockefeller drug laws, I also have an essay uh, there uh, refuting Michael Fortner's argument that essentially Black people were the core power behind the Rockefeller drug laws. But when you get to the 1980s, crack has such a devastating impact on local communities. So people are already dealing with questions of disinvestment. You have Ronald Reagan being elected, although, as we know, both Democrats and Republicans are essential to the war on drugs and the wars on crime. But crack became this very politically divisive issue within Black communities. So in 1985, Daryl Gates uses a battering ram in Los Angeles to break into a house that was allegedly a place uh, where crack was being dealt, a crack house. They find a woman and two children eating ice cream, and they essentially knock down a wall of the house. So it's this very frightening image. Ultimately, they never find drugs. This action, this explicit use of this military hardware and this attack on people's homes, it became really a, a disputed question. And you had an NAACP minister talking about the horror of this. But then you had David Cunningham, who was a city council, black city councilman in Los Angeles, essentially that supported what Daryl Gates had done. And so my essay is really about why crack mattered in thinking about the war on drugs, because people were experiencing some of the internal contradictions inside their own communities. They're worried about their own family members. They experience crack as a crisis. And I purposely use the term drug crisis or crack crisis because I didn't want to reproduce the crack epidemic, which was a language, a state sanctioned language that was always used as a justification for the Just Say No campaign, the war on drugs, the DARE abstinence program. So I didn't want to reproduce that language of the crack epidemic, but the authorities, the carceral state, love these these um, epidemic metaphors, right? And these, you know, pathology metaphors. Exactly. And I mean, even the language of crisis is still a problem, but I don't know, I didn't know how else to talk about it because the people that I interviewed in the research that I was doing, people were experiencing it as a public health crisis. And one of the most painful things is that 
during this period of economic, it's not retrenchment in terms of the military and the anti-communist foreign policy of the Reagan administration, but at a time when they are in many ways taking back the wins of the 60s and 70s. You know, we saw an enormous expansion of the welfare state in the 60s and 70s, which had largely been confined to white populations. As we know, Black people were left out of the provisions of the Social Security Act. It was very difficult for them to get access to AFDC. We had the the creation of Medicare. So the 60s and 70s is a real period of the expansion of the U.S. welfare state. But in the 1980s, many of those gains are being taken back. And so the only, often the only policy available to people were carceral punishment policies. And so out of a sense of trying to figure out what to do, how do we protect our children? What do we do about this? You had people turning to carceral policies. And Charles Rangel, the the esteemed congressman from New York, is one of the sponsors of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act in 1986 and 1988 that enshrined the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for crack versus powder cocaine. So the 80s is a painful period, 80s and 90s, where you do have Black politicians signing on to the war on drugs. In many ways, people were fighting, and I've seen, I saw it in the newspapers, people were fighting to get more policing. They were angry that they felt that public safety was primarily being directed at wealthier white areas. So these carceral solutions to a public health crisis was what was available to people. And I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to understand this versus simply to talk about it to say, oh, African-Americans were supporting punitive measures. Therefore, these are not inherently racialized or racist. And I think you could have two things true at once. That you had a Black population that was really affected all different aspects of disinvestment, of retrenchment of the Reagan years, and of this very rapidly expanding drug crisis. But these also were programs that disproportionately affected them. And one of the most painful things I deal with in that essay is that while people are trying to protect their own children and families, what we're going to see over the decades to come as the whole carceral apparatus grows is that precisely the children that they're trying to protect are the ones who are getting caught up in the system. I'm speaking with Donna Murch, author of Asada Taught Me, just out from Haymarket Books. Now, there are class differences within the Black community um, around these issues, right? Yes, absolutely. Los Angeles, according to the the edited volume, Black Los Angeles, Los Angeles has the most extreme wealth disparity of any Black community in the country. It maps itself economically and geographically, where you do have contiguous populations, but it's the areas in the hills, like Baldwin Hills, Windsor Hills, that have the concentration of Black upper middle class people, but it's in the flatlands, whether it's in Crenshaw or in South Central, that you have largely a Black working class and cash poor population that ends up being heavily criminalized. So there's a class dynamic within the community that was important to the war on drugs. And part of that argument, that article is an argument that we need to look at how class informed the responses to the war on drugs and to differentiate and to think about a working class drug war politics, as well as the responsibility of Tom Bradley, who was the first black mayor of a major city and a former police captain who presided over Los Angeles during this period. I've really been 
delving deeply into the writings of the Panthers about drugs. And they have a particular lens where they do see it through the lens of class and that largely it's poor and working class populations that are most affected. And that in some ways, it's an argument that both the what the drug war did was legitimize the state at a time of massive pushback. So, you know, the first launching of the war on drugs and 1970 by Richard Nixon is taking place at the height of the anti-war movement, at the height of the Panthers' activism. And so this was a way to re-legitimize the state. But at the same time, they also talk about the heroin plague in New York City in the 70s. There's a famous pamphlet by Michael Setaway Tabor that talks about capitalism plus dope equals genocide. And they argue that this economy, this illicit economy in heroin is deeply damaging to the community and that these are actually interlocking forces. And I'm using a similar kind of analysis to talk about crack in L.A. Okay, then moving on to uh, the present, uh, you write about uh, the Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives. And the fact that it's actually hard to give it a precise label, is it a you know, hashtag, a movement, an institution? I mean, could you talk about the various dimensions of this phenomenon to the more traditional among us, you know, schooled and organized institutions with formal agendas and structures? It looks rather strange, uh, almost ephemeral. How do you think about it? How should we think about it? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, the first thing is that I was in Los Angeles when the, with the real takeoff of the Movement for Black Lives. You know, it starts in 2012 uh, with the killing of Trayvon Martin and then the acquittal of Zimmerman. And it's that occasion where you have these convenings in Chicago with Barbara Ransby and Kathy Cohen, who are professors at the University of Illinois and University of Chicago, and they were building a Black youth project and really using the resources of the university. And that becomes a really important site for national organizing. So you have that on the one hand, and then you also have the, the founders of the Movement for Black Lives, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi, who knew each other through a shared organizing event. So they're coming out of kind of the world of professional organizers and not-for-profits. The thing that was striking to me at this moment was to see an organized response to state violence. So I was seeing it very much through the lens of, in writing about crack in Los Angeles, there were very important radical organizations that were critical of the drug war, that were critical of Reagan's anti-communist foreign policy in Central America, but they had a real problem being able to get a mass base for this. And I was trying to understand why, because my first book was all about mass mobilization of new migrants and really the birth of a, a really important leftist party-based organization. So I was really excited to see these massive demonstrations happening all over the country and finding a framework to relitigate questions of law and order and define it as a war on Black people and an attack and devaluation and destruction of Black lives. So that was very exciting to me. In looking at the movement for Black lives, it gives us the chance to think about the differences between the 1960s and 1970s and today. And there are a couple that really stand out. The first is the Cold War versus the post-Cold War. It really matters that the Panthers are born in this moment post-decolonization, their identification with Ho Chi Minh and even with Mao and with Castro in Cuba, that they're deeply identified with state socialism. And they were a Marxist-Leninist party-based organization. So that's the first difference. It's the Cold War versus the post-Cold War moment. In some ways, I think it's worth thinking about how 
many of our social movements are being born in this, our, our contemporary social movements or activism is being born in a moment of triumphant, you know, Americanism that in many ways, the threat of state socialism or the specter of state socialism is no longer there. So initially, the, I'll just say the Black Lives Matter political network is born on Twitter in response to the acquittal of Zimmerman, in which there's a dialogue between the three founders about how Black lives don't matter. And that Twitter hashtag in turn spreads virally. And then they begin organizing to bring buses down to Ferguson. There was spontaneous protest all over the country, but it ended up being understood largely through this lens of a hashtag. Black Lives Matter itself became this umbrella that the newspapers used to talk about all different kinds of Black organization. And some of it was not at all connected to the hashtag, but it became the lens that it was understood. So the three founders ultimately created the Black Lives Matter Global Network as a 501c3. So it did become an organization. But through many of its years, it was, I'd say, quite diffuse. We had the creation of the Movement for Black Lives several years later. And that was a huge umbrella group where you had academics, you had local organizations, you also had a lot of philanthropic support for this, and they crafted the vision for Black Lives in 2016. So in some ways, I think it is one of the ultimate examples of lateral organization. So in contrast to an earlier period where they were using, you know, real models of Marxist-Leninism, and even in the case of the Panther Party, there was a gesture towards military organization. So Huey Newton, the head of the organization, was called the Minister of the Defense. Whereas the Movement for Black Lives, it had this lateral structure where the founders themselves often appeared independently from this massive organizing effort. But, but in some ways, because there was not a formal hierarchy, that there was a problem of accountability, I think, between the icons of the movement and then all the different kinds of protests that have been organized over the last 10 years. Maybe it's too early to tell, but uh, what about the effectiveness of this kind of diffuse or lateral organization? Will it have a lasting effect? It's already had an enormous effect, not unlike the Occupy movement, another lateral-based organization, a lateral-based form of activism. I'll put it like that. I think that it was really important in shifting the narrative because the narratives do matter in the wars on crime and wars on drugs. So by really defining what had been understood through the lens always of pathology and crime and threat, they interrupted the narrative of law and order and said this is a destruction of Black life. So I think that the changing of the narrative really matters. In terms of organizational structure, and of course, as you know, I'm a chapter president of the union, and I wrote a book on the Panthers. I really think that organizational form matters a lot. And the problem with lateral organization is there's, as someone called it, a tyranny of structurelessness. When you don't have organized forms of hierarchy in an organization, which are also require accountability, that there's still leaders and rank and file members, but their responsibilities aren't written into the organizational structure. So ironically, I think that lateral movements can have some of the most difficulties. Number one, just in the process of how things are done, that I think it's very difficult to have consensus-based decision-making. And I think it's a larger question that we have to ask that 
prefigurative politics and lateral-based organizing has become a very common vision of what political activism looks like. And I think it's good for getting press coverage and changing national narratives. But in order to have really rooted campaigns in people's neighborhoods and people's cities and to knit those together into a national movement, I think that there are real challenges. Okay, fine. Let's just return to Asada Shakur, the Black Panther Party. What's the lingering influence of the party and, and her as a figure on the current movement? And we have writers who are saying that the Panthers have nothing to uh, tell us in 2022. Your writing suggests otherwise. So just what, what do you think? Is it really a, a lingering model, a lingering influence? It is clearly a lingering influence. I chose the title of the book because it's what I observed that a younger generation of radicals were influenced by Asada Shakur. And they were looking for a form of politics to confront state violence and to link it to broader struggles like anti-capitalism, as well as gender and queer identity. We had 26 million people went out onto the streets in 2020, uh, under the banner of the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter. So I think it already has had an impact. I think that there are challenges in transmitting histories from the past. I think people are coming of age at a very different moment. There needs to be deeper study into the history and the archive of left organizing, in this case, Black radicalism and Black left organizing, be that the Black union movement, I recently heard from our union vice president, we're, we all see ourselves as part of a, a larger radical movement, higher education, using industrial unionism in the higher education sector, that the first wall-to-wall union organizing effort uh, in the higher education was at Howard University, and it was dismantled by Taft-Hartley after World War II. So I think going into the archive of Black radicalism, that includes the radical union movement, it also includes Black really Marxist organizations like the Black Panther Party. You know, I'm familiar with Cedric Johnson's work. And it's really a shame because I think that the attack on the party is argument that the Panthers are, I think he calls them ethno-nationalists. It's a really profound misrepresentation of the party, you know, who were the largest, I'd say they're the largest Black Marxist organization uh, in U.S. history. And I think that that's not giving them their proper due. It's clear that they have been, that the contemporary activists have been influenced by the Black Panther Party. On the other hand, it's a larger problem that we have in the U.S. How do we transmit our real history beyond iconography? And unfortunately, that's not limited to Black politics. It's a larger problem, given really the effects of the Cold War. You know, where I am with this is that I think that we're living in the afterlife of the Cold War. And there's a younger generation of activism activists who are very excited by socialism and Marxism and new types of organizing. But at the same time, because of the effects of the enormous anti-communist hegemony of the United States, a lot of that real materialist history hasn't been translated. And so you're left with images, not with the deep-rooted histories. So I think that it is always a challenge to transmit through political education. But I'm excited to see a younger generation of activists open up that history by invoking Asada Shakur and by thinking about the continued importance of Black Marxism. 
That was Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers and author of Asada Taught Me, just out from Haymarket Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. The enraged man always appears as the gang leader of his own self, giving his unconscious the order to pull no punches. His eyes shining with satisfaction, speaking to many that he himself is. The more someone is discussed, the cause of his own aggression, the more perfectly represents in this sense, more than any other, some of a punk setting of some words from T.W. Adorno's Minimum Moralia by Brian Joseph Davis from 2004. This bit comes from aphorism number 23. I think the band's name is Vox and the singer's name is Dawn Unwanted, but credits are hard to come by on the web. You have to wonder if this whole project would have made Teddy's head explode. Next, Hungary, where its prime minister, the right-wing Viktor Orban and his party, Fidesz, won a decisive victory in the election held April 3rd, its fourth victory since 2010. I say decisive rather than landslide, because Fidesz and its coalition partner won just under 53% of the vote. A majority, yes, but not an overwhelming one. But the opposition was divided, and an even further right party, our homeland, accounted for 6% of the vote. Orban has become a hero to the American right. Why is that? And what's the source of his appeal in Hungary? To answer those questions, we're joined by Kyle Shibunko, a Ph.D. candidate at NYU, who wrote a highly informative piece on the topic on the New Left Review's website. Kyle Shibunko. American right-wingers uh, seem to be in love with uh, Hungary's Viktor Orban. They seem something like a model or a hero. What exactly do they find so appealing about him? Well, I think there are a few things at work, uh, some of them ideological and some of them a bit more practical or um strategic. So as a model, American right-wingers tend to accept Orban's own presentation of the regime he's built, as do most um, American liberals, I would say, or a lot of um, foreign journalists, which is to say that he's uh, built a regime that has, on the first count, brought Christianity into government, which is something, obviously, that the American right, or at least the Christian right, is uh, very interested and uh, presently engaged in doing, right? The other thing, there's a perception, I think, on the American right, if we want to call them the populist right or the uh, post, post-liberal right. Yes. Or, or illiberal democracy. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and um, a lot of this perception, I think, hinges on that speech that Orban gave. This was at a political summer camp of sorts in Transylvania some years ago, describing his project as one of illiberal democracy. So for a certain part of the American right, they see uh, the Orban government as a right-wing government that is certainly capitalist. These aren't pinkos or or commies, but a right-wing conservative government that is taking inequality seriously in some way or taking on, if not inequality, taking on corrupt business interests or capitalist interests. And I think this perception comes from, you know, a few different particular actions of the Orban government. 
but also just the Orban government's own um, painting of itself as as this kind of a crusading force in in so many requests uh, respects. The kind of strategic point I would mention is that uh, you know the fact that Orban has been in power uh, this long um, has meant that he's been able to develop a sort of parallel academic network in Hungary. So you know there's been a, a concerted effort by uh, Fidesz and their coalition partners, the uh, Christian Democratic People's Party, uh, to dismantle the Hungarian higher education system and the Hungarian academic research infrastructure. Despite this concerted effort, they they haven't done away with it entirely. And so their strategy has been rather to starve the beast, right? And instead to, in parallel, develop a new network of conservative learning and conservative research institutions that can offer platforms and offer money to uh, right-wingers from really across the world, but, cer- but certainly including Americans like Tucker Carlson, to come to Hungary. This has become, uh, you know, Hungary's become an important uh, tour stop for a lot of uh, Americans, as it were. He just won a fourth uh, term by a wider than expected landslide. Um, this guy's been around for a long time. You expect his popularity might erode over that length of time, but it's not. What's the source of his continuing appeal? We might need to talk about different constituencies he appeals to. So one of the constituencies that has been a part of his political coalition and and of his parties, well, certainly since 2010, when he was elected to government most recently, sorry, I'm I'm stumbling over this because the issue is that Fidesz also came into government for a single term from 2002 to 2006, right? This was kind of a dry run. They made some mistakes and they finally came back in 2010 and have been there ever since. The constituency that has been important that entire time is a part of the Hungarian middle class or or at least self-styled middle class, self-styled bourgeoisie that is committed to a sort of conservative Christian, but also uh, Western looking in a civilizational sense, European minded bourgeoisie. This milieu, and we're talking about, you know, maybe people who are professional civil servants, small proprietors, or maybe owners of small and medium-sized businesses, this has been an important kind of elite constituency of Orban the entire time. That cohort cannot make up an entire electorate, can't keep him in power uh, the entire time. So on the one hand, Orban has kept this key constituency, which also I think is still the constituency that is in large part represented by his politics. In the subsequent years since the 2010 victory, Orban's had to take a, a couple different electoral strategies at different points, you know, so in or rather after 2014, because of some corruption scandals, you saw uh, Orban really embrace this full throated opposition to migration, which was essentially a political non-issue in Hungarian politics prior. The politicization of, of immigration and migration was something that gave Orban a new constituency and a constituency across classes, I would say, that he's kept ever since. This is how I would characterize his his ability to maintain support, even despite his recent relative thumping of the opposition. Right. We're still talking about a party that is winning, you know, 52, 53, 54 percent of the vote and at times has, you know, been down in the in the 40s. It's never been a party that's that's been winning the sort of unheard of, uh, you know, 60, 70 percent that you you get the perception of when you talk to some conservative sympathizers of the Hungarian government. It's often presented that every Hungarian supports this government, whereas I think in some ways, one of the continuities of the regime has been that it's it's been around 50-50 the whole time. 
from his first time in office in 2010, when that longer term began. From what I've read, he began transforming the judiciary, the electoral system, the labor code, university governance, all to his liking, centralizing power. So how closely does Hungary resemble a bourgeois democracy now? What is the content of this illiberal democracy he talks about? This is an important question. It's an important question, and not just in a, in, a, in the realm of political classification, but also in terms of uh, thinking about the prospects of political change in the future. So you're correct that in, in 2010 and in his you know, first term, 2010 to 2014, one of the first things he did you know, very intentionally and, and clearly with his eye toward um, a long time in government was to reform the constitution in a number of ways. So you mentioned, I think, the courts, the, the high court was um, essentially uh, denuded. He got that out of the way very quickly. So as to ensure that that future reforms and legislative initiatives had no prospect of being called back or reviewed. The other major um, change he made, which has kept him in power too, basic structural changes to the elect the election system and to the way that constituencies were drawn to the way that the legislature is composed with the eye to keeping a party in power that might win, say, as little as 43% of the vote. Now, obviously, in this last election, you know, Orban outdid himself, Fidesz outdid himself. Um, but in prior elections, that constitutional change has, um, that electoral change has been key. Is Hungary a liberal democracy? In some ways, this is something that's being litigated in the institutions of the EU. In that sense, it remains to be seen. As far as I'm concerned, if we're talking about um, a bourgeois democracy where there is um, the at least institutional uh, possibility and makings of something like a free press, right? Even if you know the, the press is uh, corrupted by business interests and whatnot, but there's some some sort of uh, competition in in the uh, space of the uh, of the press and the public sphere in general. To the extent that that's an important part of uh, liberal bourgeois democracy, Hungary certainly isn't one now. Press and media consolidation alongside the dismantling of constitutional safe, uh, safeguards and the um, bespoke design or redesign of the electoral system, that has been key to his ability to stay in power. Without that media consolidation, um, the realm of, of Hungarian politics, period, would be very different. Earlier, you mentioned um, elite support, professional managerial class, I guess we'd call it. Um, but what about above that? Is there some kind of big bourgeoisie that uh, he relates to, or is that lacking in Hungary in any meaningful way? It's a very good question um, and an Im important question. And I like that you use the word uh, a big bourgeoisie, because this is actually a term used in Hungary by people of Orban's ilk and has been for a while. One of the issues some of the early politicians and emergent political elite in the 1990s in Hungary uh, were very concerned with not just the short-term transition of uh, Hungary from a, a communist or socialist country into a market economy or a, a capitalist democracy, but were also concerned with this longer durée question of um, Hungary's development. And so a problem that they saw was not simply that Hungary had been socialized, but that Hungary had really never developed a, a real strong, prosperous bourgeoisie in the first place. So the creation of a big bourgeoisie, and this is also reflected by certain Hungarian elites and, and um, thinkers concerned with Hungary's size as a small country in Central Europe. There's an understanding and kind of acceptance that when you're a country this size, it's actually good and important to have a few big 
bourgeois players, a few big businessmen, which in other contexts, I think we're, we're quick to call oligarchs, right? They don't use that term. But there's an acceptance, certainly on the Hungarian right, that Hungary as a small, um, middle-income, semi-peripheral country is actually in dire need of some big bourgeois guys like this. The irony is that even though uh, this has been kind of an interest of the Hungarian right wing for a long time, and one of the goals, in a way, of the Orban regime, you don't really have it. There are a few Hungarian billionaires, I think, but not many, certainly compa- you know, compared to, and part of this is the size of the country, but certainly nothing like what exists in, in a country like Russia. So are there people up above, as you put it? Not really. There are some Hungarian um, magnates or moguls that have close relationships with Orban. There's you know, a serious reliance on um, government procurement for some of these people in the construction industry, say. But they don't really represent a huge portion of the Hungarian economy. So that, I think, is, is how you might distinguish uh, the situation of, you know, or the, or the existence of corrupt oligarchic types in Hungary with, you know, the situation elsewhere where, where these corrupt oligarchs actually, you know, own some of the most important industries. I'm speaking with Kyle Shabunko, author of a piece in the recent Hungarian election on the New Left Review website. You mentioned religion, but also gender and sexuality are very important to the Orban agenda, right? Yeah. These things have been really politicized, I would say, since 2018, more and more every day. Initially, some of the the politics around gender was also tied to the effort to remove Central European University from Hungary. So this is the um, English language private university that had been located and granting degrees in Hungary since the 90s um, and was founded originally with money from George Soros's foundation, which wasn't called Open Society at the time, but it, or the legal predecessor to what is now, you know, the Open Society Network, which is all over the place. This university, you know, was a target for the government, largely because in their minds, an unaccountable, well-funded institution right in the capital producing a bunch of graduates with liberal and in some cases even you know leftist ideas. So in the campaign uh, to get CU out, one of the kind of rhetorical fronts became this condemnation of CU's gender studies program. It was in one of the you know kind of pro-government rags, a magazine called Fijelu. Uh, they published an expose piece on, you know, here, look at some of the titles of the MA theses from the uh, the gender studies uh, program at CU, and isn't this outrageous, right? That's the first time I remember the the real attack on so-called gender ideology becoming a preoccupation of the government. Since then, it's really the specter of, of gender ideology has come to be a, a target that for the government can encompass crude transphobia, crude homophobia, as well as more specific policies around why we should continue to oppo- uh, oppose gay marriage, say. In the most recent election, there was this kind of a referendum held um, largely in order to get Fidesz voters out that asked the voters a bunch of leading questions about whether they want gender ideology taught to their kids in school, right? So this stuff has become uh, really, really frequently mobilized by the government in the last years. And I would guess that in the coming four years, it it will probably only get worse. And they're probably going to have to do some things in order to show how serious they are that um, hurt more people. 
Domestically, what's the mix of uh, social democracy and neoliberal programs? You said they were trying to address inequality, but they're also trying to deregulate the labor market. So what's the general drift of these policies? Overall, we're talking about neoliberal policies. There are occasional instances where you seem to have a strong state stepping in to do something in a particular industry. An example of that would be uh, several years ago, renationalizing and then refranchising out the tobacco industry. This was a, a great way to distribute power and wealth to supporters, but it was also framed as a correction of bad privatization that was done under the liberal socialists who were in power before. So you do have a, you know some instances of, of that sort of thing. And those are the stories that give some truth to the idea that, oh, you know, Orban and Fidesz are bucking certain neoliberal trends. But broadly, what you said uh, about, you know, liberalizing the labor market is correct. The labor market, something that affects almost everyone's society, right, has been totally liberalized. And uh, since 2012, this is when uh, Fidesz passed their major reform to the labor code. Trade unions are still legal. They were never that strong in uh, post-socialist Hungary, but their ability to uh, be active in shops, to be active on work councils has been further curtailed. And labor laws um, in general around safety, around working hours, and other things have also been made laxer and laxer, right? And the rhetoric around this is sometimes um, framed as allowing hardworking, Christian, uh, responsible Hungarian workers to work more, which is something that their bosses aren't letting them do, or something that socialists don't want to let them do. But it's pretty transparent often with these reforms that who benefits, right? And it's the employers, whoever they are. Um, And in Hungary, a a tremendous part of the economy and a tremendous part of the productive export economy, which is is a perpetual interest and concern of the government, are foreign-owned subsidiaries, right? When in 2018, the reform, so-called reform to the labor code uh, was passed, which would allow employers to forego or rather forestall overtime payments for up to two years after also uh, extending, uh, increasing the amount of overtime that uh, workers could be compelled to work. There were jokes that people were making, you know, just in the street and cafes and pubs that, um, you know, oh, this bill was written by BMW. It had been recently announced that BMW was going to build a new plant in part of Eastern Hungary. Now, that's probably not true. Um, Obviously, they didn't actually write it. And there are Hungarian capitalists who are interested in this reform as well, but I think it's still an illuminating joke and also an indication that, you know, there's there's an awareness of this in, in Hungarian society that there are big interests all over the place. Some of them are foreign, some of them are domestic. Orban's been able to convince enough people, even if they have that cynical kind of understanding that maybe he's getting them a better deal than someone else might be. <laughs> okay. Uh, finally, any sign of opposition? I mean, it sounds like they only got 52% of the vote. There is opposition, but is it divided, weak, uh, incoherent? Uh, How large is it? What does it consist of? The opposition is diverse, I guess, and and not not insignificant. But at present, we're talking about an opposition composed of some Christian Democrats, some social Democrats, some self-styled millennial centrist types, some socialists, right? But how, how social their policies are is is another question. And also um, an opposition composed of right-wingers as well, including the the Jobbik party, which listeners might remember from the 2010s when they were in the press far more often. 
um, in large part because they were far more right wing back then. So in any case, you have a very diverse opposition, but they're coming off this terrible election loss in which their strategy, which had been this big tent opposition strategy, right? We're going to bring together the right wing, left wing, liberals, everyone running on a single ticket with a single prime ministerial candidate who was this guy, uh, Mark Izai. And we're going to pitch ourselves to the Hungarian voters as the moral upstanding alternative to Orban. And we're going to restore the constitutional order and do all of these things. This strategy totally failed. And so I'm hesitant to characterize what the opposition is like today, because uh, surely it's going to change, needs to change in the coming months. But the bottom line is that in parliament now, after the defeat of this unity ticket, he may end up facing a kind of more divided opposition than ever. And it's unclear, I think, as yet, which of the components of that opposition is going to have an opportunity to reinvent themselves under this next Orban term. If we're talking about opposition as in the prospect of actual political change, it's going to have to come through, at least in part, non-electoral politics. Yeah, this sounds familiar. There seems to be a lot of this around the world where the post-liberal forces may not have a majority, but they're very well organized. And uh, everyone else seems to be just trying to run as the not-them candidate. I mean, we're seeing this in France now, too. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's um, true. And there are even some figures in the Hungarian opposition who uh, very much see uh, Macron as a model, but it's it's clearly not. <laughs> it's not very inspiring. <laughs> not been and probably won't be an effective one. There were some attempts to do this, and they failed to do it this time to tie some of these, you know, this diverse electoral opposition to actual social movements on the ground involving, you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. There are a number of examples of these, you know, it's not uncommon under Orban's government for a policy to be passed that actually really bothers a lot of people. And you might and you might have protests, not just in Budapest, but in other cities. The most uh, kind of extreme example of this was that 2018 labor law, which got the moniker amongst Hungarians as the slave law. The protests in opposition to the slave law in 2018, going into 2019, and then the associated strikes in that year in 2019, represented a really massive mobilization of of Hungarians against a, a particular government policy, right? Against the government and against, um, in many cases, their employers. This was a wave of kind of mass social action that also cut across party lines, right? Because there were there were even people uh, at the time who were Fidesz voters or, or may, and maybe just casual Fidesz voters, right? You know, not everyone thinks about politics all the time. So maybe someone who's just, you know, voted, voted for the government because they thought things were decent enough, but then in 2018, 2019 found them protesting against this labor reform. If the electoral opposition is going to have success in the future, there's no question in my mind that it's going to come from engagement with those forces or whatever the future forces of opposition to to um, Orban's policies are. One of the unique things about those labor protests was also that um, it was truly a national wave of protest, not something isolated to Budapest where there's far greater access to uh, diverse media and stuff like that. The hope for the opposition is to take the energy and and hopefully take the lead from whatever forces of, you know, kind of organic nationwide opposition emerge in the future, whether that's around some new, even more um, grotesque labor law. One could imagine it being around uh, the price of, of foodstuffs and whatnot if if the government has trouble managing that. 
the power, as it were, is is in the streets, but you know, not just the streets of uh, Budapest, but streets of the smaller towns and, and villages, if there is any power to be had. That was Kyle Shabunko, a PhD candidate at NYU, who wrote a very informative piece on Hungary on the New Left Review's website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a fragrance sample of 1980s cheese, which Victor Orban and Fidesz used as a theme song in one of their earlier campaigns. Listen to Your Heart by Roxette. Till next week, bye. Listen to your heart When he's calling for you Listen to your heart